Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Let's get in the Word. Continuing our study in Genesis this evening, we're going to pick back up in Genesis 27. I want us to do a little bit of review there before we get into chapter 28. So we'll pick things up there in Genesis 27, verse 38. Genesis 27, of course, and uh, we were in this a week before last. Carlos uh, taught this past Wednesday night. Do appreciate him filling in and sharing the word. And so going back then to Genesis chapter 27, that's where Isaac blesses Jacob. You remember the, the account where uh, there's some manipulation going on. And, and, and in that chapter, in our study of the chapter, we saw some different personalities, if you will, some different characters, uh, that characteristics, I guess we could say, that were on display by uh, Isaac and Rebekah and uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, from Isaac, who, e- even though I do believe Isaac finishes well and, and has certainly experienced a good bit of growth in his life over uh, many years, we see Isaac kind of functioning as a carnal Christian in this moment. He's, he's even though he knows that the blessing is intended for Jacob, that that is what God had foreordained, even though he understands that Esau, uh, albeit a son whom he loves, a son who he just appreciates much about him in terms of his his skill as a hunter and the food that he's able to bring back. And there's just a lot that Isaac likes about Esau, but, but he's being led a little bit by his flesh because he's overlooking much of Esau's character flaws. He's disregarding what he knows to be what God desires. Um, and so he's operating in, in the flesh. And, and then you have Rebecca, who is aware of these things, and, and it appears she too has a little bit of a favorite uh, in Jacob, but she also knows that, that Jacob is, is the one who God has said he's the one who's going to uh, serve over his uh, brother, lead over his brother, and, and, and I think she's got a concern, though some of this is certainly speculation, we, we can't know fully, but I think there's a concern on her part, e- Esau can't be the one that has the birthright, he can't be the one that receives the blessing, e- in many respects he's not a good man, and he's certainly not going to be the spiritual leader of the family. The problem is, for Rebecca, what we see there is, is she's functioning as a bit of the manipulator, she's wanting to accomplish what she believes God wants to accomplish, but she's not doing it the way God would want her to do it, and that is by trusting him to work in this situation. Um, and so then we see uh, Jacob as well, and, and Jacob is the one who's, he's, he's got a little bit of manipulation in him as well, but, but more than that, Jacob's really just concerned about what his dad thinks. He's concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about uh, a lot of the superficial things. He's motivated a good bit by what he want by by his desire to be received and and loved by his father. And we'll consider that a little bit more tonight. And um, he's less concerned with his character and more concerned about his reputation. Um, I think there's a lot of people that can see themselves in Jacob. Um, I know that I certainly can. I, I think Jacob's life, in, in some respects, is a good bit of my own testimony as one who, you know, would 
uh, professed that I was saved, but, but I really wasn't. And I was much more concerned about what people thought about me and my reputation than what I was really about ultimately pleasing God and doing that which He desired. And so um, I can see uh, some of myself in, in Jacob. And then we have Esau, who really represents, in my opinion, one who is just, he's just lost. He's, he's truly lost. And we'll see that here in the latter part of this chapter that we'll revisit here tonight because we went through it quickly uh, the Wednesday before. As Esau even attempts to try and regain uh, aspects of, of um, favor, uh, as he tries to kind of write some things in order to receive blessing, we just see that Esau just doesn't get it. Um, he truly doesn't, doesn't get it. And that's kind of where we pick up here in verse 38. Uh, it says, And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12 that uh, it was Esau who sought the blessing and he sought it with tears. I mean, there was emotion behind this. But ultimately, there was, there was nothing there for him. Esau was beginning to experience the consequences of his own behavior. You know, there often comes a point in the life of one who has squandered much. The harsh reality of the cost of their compromise. It begins to become apparent. The gravity of what they've lost, the consequences of their sin, often becomes overwhelming. And, and this was really that moment for Esau. Now, here, make no mistake about it, no matter what you've done, should the conviction of the Holy Spirit come upon you, the awareness of your sin become apparent, please know that God's grace is sufficient. We, we ought not to look at the situation here with Esau and see an example of one who was truly seeking repentance and forgiveness that God would not provide. That's not the case. God's grace is sufficient. Turn and repent. And when somebody's there and they realize where they're at, they realize their sinful condition, repent, seek forgiveness. You're not beyond God's reach. But we must be aware that the life lived for the world, even after many years when someone turns and repents, there's still going to be consequences. There's still going to be consequences of our decisions and the way in which we've lived our lives. We have to be aware of that. But for Esau here specifically, it was the awareness of what he had lost that prompted his sorrow. It wasn't a desire for righteous living. Esau wasn't interested in just fundamentally changing his whole life. He, 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 nowhere in Scripture do we see where he comes to his father and he says, you know what, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me for the way that I've lived? Would you forgive me for the decisions that I've made? Would you forgive me for my foolishness? What we see here on the part of Esau is just the realization that he's not going to be blessed. He's not going to get what it is that he may be desired. In the same manner, we must come to Christ not in remorse over simply what we've lost, but independence for the hope of a future, for forgiveness, for a right relationship. Esau wants a blessing. There's no apology here. There's no remorse. He's just grieving what he's lost. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, verse 39, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live. 
See, the brother who to this point had lived off of the land, who had hunted, in many cases for mere sport, uh, who was carnal and motivated by the desires of his flesh, he would continue to live off the land. He would continue to be a man of the sword. And we see this proven out throughout history. Isaac goes on to say, you shall serve your brother. So now here Isaac is just embracing what, what ultimately now is the truth is the case. He's saying, you're going to serve your brother. You've lost your birthright. I've blessed your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Again, this is what we've seen throughout history. The descendants of Esau are known as the Edomites. In the book of Obadiah, if you were to go and look in the book of Obadiah, you would see really the, the only one time when, when God pronounces a judgment on on only a particular group of people, whether it was you know, as opposed to, say, for example, the people of the land. Here he singles out the Edomites, and, and God essentially declares war with them. The, the history of the Edomites, I mean, you could spend a good bit of time digging into it. I just want to review a little bit of it here tonight. They, they uh, continued on from this point, the descendants of Esau. Eventually they ended up settling in... Um, to in, in some parts of the, the southern part of, of Israel as well as in the, the West Bank. Um, uh, many of them settled in the, in the West Bank around 3000 B.C. And they've always then been a source of opposition to Israel. Um, the Edomites uh, were very much considered a, a, a pagan people. Um, they worshipped fertility gods. I mean, consider Esau's... Uh, intermarriage with the pagan people of the land, two women in particular that we're going to see here shortly. Rebecca just says they're, uh, she, she can't take these, these daughters that she has, be, and, and she sees how they've continued to lead her son further and further into the things of the world. And so his descendants become pagan worshipers, worshipers of fertility gods. The Edomites regularly attacked uh, Israel, uh, many wars were fought, fought as a result of the Edomites. King Saul fought against them. King David uh, brought them into subjugation. Um, he uh, put military outposts in the area of Edom. Uh, during the Maccabean Wars, the Edomites were uh, subjugated by the Jews at that time. They were forced to convert to Judaism, and so they were Jewish uh, in terms of nationality, but not by religion. Um, and, and so through that time, being forced to convert to Judaism, it just continued to fuel their hatred for the Jewish people. Um, when the Greek language became the common language. Uh, the Edomites were called, at that point, Edomeans. Um, with the rise then of the Roman Empire, an Edomean whose father had converted to Judaism was named King of Judea. Um, that Edomean is known as King Herod the Great. So he is part of the offspring of the Edomites. Um, he's the one who ordered the massacre in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the Messiah. After Herod's death, the Edomian people really started to slowly disappear from history. Um, God had spoken of their destruction in a couple of places in Ezekiel. Um, specifically in Ezekiel 35:15, he says, As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, 
then they will know that I am the Lord. Um, this continues on. Uh, they continue to kind of um, disappear as a as a as a, a distinct people group. Um, all the way up to the year 70 A.D. What happens in 70 A.D.? Anybody know? Temple, destruction of the temple, right? Um, the, the Romans invade. Uh, it's reported, Josephus writes, that at this particular time, the Jewish people in desperation looked to the Edomaeans and allowed 20,000 of them to come into the city as they had promised that they would help to defend the Jewish people. They instead turned on them and, it, and uh, massacred them uh, in partnership with the Romans. And after that time, then, they really began to um, disperse. And because of their uh, connection to Herod and their support of Rome, it's believed that most of the Edomites or the Edomaeans uh, made their way to Rome and descendants of them are living in Rome still to this day. Um, but really, any record at this point of Edomites specifically uh, can't be found. It's, it's a group of people that seems to have entirely disappeared. I think it's interesting, though, to know that they made their way to Rome because that starts to make then a good bit of sense when you consider chapters like Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 24 and the book of Revelation and the role that Rome will play in the end times and the significance of the Antichrist coming through um, the Edomite people. Um, and so it's one of those things that you look at and you go, okay, um, their hatred for the Jews continues to this day, and, and no doubt um, they will play a role in the rising of a Roman Empire once again that will play a significant part in end times prophecy. And so here, I mean, all of that just helps us to understand as we look at that history, albeit brief there, uh, that I mean, what Isaac is saying here at this moment is he's saying, listen, you're going to serve your brother. By your sword, you're going to live. It shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And, and a lot of people believe that that right there, that you shall break his yoke from your neck, that that will find its fulfillment in the Antichrist establishing himself in the temple to be worshipped, that that will be the moment where he's fully broken off from um, servitude to his brother. But um, we, we, of course, don't know that for sure. Um, so it's pretty incredible just the way in which... Uh, this has been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled. Verse 41, so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau thinks that his dad is about to die. That's what Isaac thought. We read earlier in chapter 27 that Isaac's says his eyes were dim. He was blind. He, he's, his health was failing. But in fact, uh, Isaac's going to continue to live for, for quite some time. But Esau thinks here, my dad's going to die, so I'm going to take time to mourn him, and then I'm going to kill my brother. In the words of Esau, verse 42, uh, her older son, <clears throat> excuse me, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? I don't know what all is going on in Rebecca's heart. I think certainly here, based off of... Uh, 
what we read. She's saying, why should I, why should I be bereaved of, of both of you in one day? She's struggling with the condition of her son Esau. She's struggling with the fact that he wants to take his brother's life. Hopefully at this point, there's a little bit of a sense of, and this just isn't working out the way that I planned it. And that's the lesson there, right? It's not about what you've planned. It's about what God has planned. We know, though, though, I recognize that I need to be careful not to make a a statement necessarily here because the word doesn't. God doesn't declare in Scripture here that she was wrong. I think we can see some principles at play here um, that uh, her efforts to accomplish some things would likely have been uh, better suited her just trusting in the Lord to do what he said he was going to do. But she's at a point now where she's saying, you got to get out of here. you got to go, Jacob. And so she continues then in her manipulation. And she's trying, again, to do God's work, but, but not do it God's way. And so she now hatches a plan. But sadly for Rebecca, what, what she thinks is just going to be a few days until Esau cools down a little bit, turns into more than 20 years. And as far as, as what's recorded in Scripture, she never sees her son again. And, and so again, I mean, there, there's consequences to our actions. There's consequences to our uh, behavior and Rebecca here trying to kind of seal the deal to make sure that that Jacob indeed leaves she says to Isaac verse 46 I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth if Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these who are the daughters of the land what good will my life be to me she she basically says if Jacob marries one of these local girls I'm gonna die uh, truly, I mean, she's saying these and my, my daughters, the, the the Esau's wives, they're uh, they're not good. Jacob can't marry any of these girls, and so I think here she's pe- she's appealing to Isaac a little bit to ensure that she gets his help in sending him off, sending him away, so that he's safe, and certainly um, to take a wife from uh, a proper place. This, of course, is where she was when Isaac's servant came for her Um, and so she ensures that now in talking with Isaac that he does his part to send Jacob off with a blessing and to seek a wife from a proper place and so then in chapter 28 verse 1 we read then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So, let's pause for a moment here. We know that as, as Isaac is giving instruction here to say, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, he's familiar with that, right? That's what his own father had communicated to him. But there's something a little bit different. In the case of Isaac, what happened? He stayed. They were certain, from Abraham's perspective, Isaac, you're not going anywhere. There was a little bit of a sense, it seems, and it's alluded to in Scripture, that if he goes, maybe he won't come back. Maybe, maybe he'll you know, end up in a place that he shouldn't be. And so the decision was made, you're going to stay here, and one of our servants is going to go and seek out a wife for you. It was a pretty big task for that servant, if you remember. We don't know his name believe that he's representative of the Holy Spirit, uh, if you look at that story. And um, the father sending out the, the Spirit, bringing the bride to his son. Um, but uh, Isaac, we know, stays behind. 
In this case, they're saying, Jacob, you're going to go, right? Now, the next eight chapters in the book of Genesis here are really going to focus in on the life of Jacob. So from here, through, even though we've already been dealing with Jacob a little bit, from here through the next eight chapters, it's really going to be about him and his story building all the way up to uh, Joseph. And we're going to see God's transforming work of this man. Uh, we're going to see God making him into the man that he's created him to be. And it's really going to start with this next encounter that we have as he, as he goes out and makes his way to a place called Bethel. Um, now, like Isaac and like Abraham, God's going to be working in him, changing him, transforming him. We're going to see throughout his life that he becomes a different man, the same way that God did it in the life of Abraham, the same way he did it in the life of Isaac. But this journey, and I think it's important to note this here, this journey is different for everyone. For Isaac, you need, he needed to stay there. For Jacob, he's going to go. It was, it was important for Jacob to leave. And I mention that here because I think it is important for us to understand that this process of sanctification, the way that God works in our lives to bring transformation, to some degree it's different for all of us. The, the objective might still be the same, that God wants to do a sanctifying work in our lives of setting us apart, of creating within us a greater love for Him and a desire to serve Him. But the way in which that's accomplished for each of us can be very different. And so for Jacob, it was important that he go. He needed to get away. And we're going to see that God almost immediately begins to deal with him. Um, and may that, maybe that's an encouragement for others as well, that, that it's as Jacob gets away from all of this, uh, this mess, you could almost call it, that almost immediately he, began, he has an encounter with God. Um, and sometimes that's the case, as God takes us away from what's familiar, from what may be comfortable, um, from sometimes just the, <laughs> the mess of the family dynamic, that he gets us away from the noise, and he's able to get a hold of us. Um, and so we're going to see that here with, with Jacob. Uh, now here Isaac does bless Jacob in verse 3 and 4. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. It's pretty interesting here. I mean, those of the parents that have uh, had the opportunity of sending a child out, maybe it was an emotional thing. I mean, to, this is some of what's happening here right now. It's kind of weird. He's, I think he's about 77 at this point. So it's not exactly like the 18-year-old or 19-year-old heading off to college. But, but in principle, it's similar to the longer lifespan. I can remember this. I can remember vividly the moment that my car was all packed up and being sent off to, to college and what a weird thing what a strange adventure you know and you got all your stuff whatever you, you've been living at home and you've been you know living the good life and all of a sudden you're like well okay here i go you know and 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 for jacob he's been living at home he's he, he was a man who lived in tents he, he and he's being and, and notice when when the servant was sent out on isaac's behalf he had a bit of an entourage. He, he, had some, he had a good bit to go along with him. With, with Jacob here, there's no security. There's nobody traveling with him. 
He's not a man who's well-versed in, in how to defend himself, it would seem, based off of Scripture. Um, this, this has got to be a pretty, this is a pretty big step. Um, it's got to create some uneasiness on the part of Jacob, not to mention the fact that the circumstances that he's leaving behind are far from the best. So Jacob departs, right? He goes out, they send him out. Uh, but again, it's not too long into this journey that God shows up. And it seems then that Isaac has some life back in him. He's going to live for a good while longer. Uh, and now Esau, not mourning the loss of his father, unable at this point to track down and kill Jacob, shifts his attention now to perhaps trying to regain a little bit of, a, a little bit of favor. So before we fully kind of go to Jacob's journey, we see in verse 6 that Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge. So Esau's paying attention now. Now the actual blessing, one that, that Jacob really is intending now to give, or excuse me, that Isaac is intending to give to Jacob, um, Esau's paying attention to this. And he's seeing here that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father. <laughs> this is interesting too. You almost get this sense that Esau's going, oh, obedience okay right and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac so he's learning he's like oh okay so these ladies I married my parents aren't too happy about this so Esau what's he do he went to Ishmael and took Mahalath the daughter of Ishmael Abraham's son the sister of Naboth to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. You almost get the sense that Esau goes out and he says, well, see, now I've got a third wife, but maybe one that's more pleasing to you. What, are, are you happy now? But Esau is still is truly lost. He's still unrepentant. Unfortunately here, what's happening is he's only going deeper into the sin of polygamy to try and gain favor so that he can have a blessing. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians in 7.13, he writes in dealing with marriage, he says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now why, why do I mention that necessarily? Well, the, the point being, when you're in a situation that maybe didn't begin in obedience to the Lord, uh, maybe it wasn't rooted in pleasing the Lord, it doesn't free you to be further disobedient in, att in an attempt to make it right. Right? What we see Esau doing here is, no, you, you, you're not going to do something that's displeasing to the Lord, disobedient, and somehow it go, well, yeah, this is that, that now, now everything's been made right. We continue to see the foolishness of Esau. And so remember then from here, we really focus in more intently on the life of Jacob. And in, in doing so, we begin then to see the transforming work that God is accomplishing in his life. Verse 10, we read, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed, verse 12, And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. So Jacob lays down to rest. He's on the run. He's also on a mission. He knows where he's got to get to. He knows that there's an objective. 
No doubt he's likely grieving some loss. His departure was rather sudden. He's wrestling with his actions. I mean, this couldn't have been a very restful night. And as he goes to sleep, he has this dream. Now, this would very much be a theophany. This would be a moment where God uh, uh, makes himself in his presence very real to someone. And it happens often in a number of different ways, including in dreams. And so verse 13 says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Quite a word of encouragement. And the first thing I want us to notice here is just that. What is it that God's saying? If you look there at verse 15, uh, God says, I'm, I'm with you. I am with you. I will keep you. And I will bring you back, meaning I will protect you. And then he says, in kind of another way, and I promise I'll do it. He sort of reinforces it again. I mean, for here, he's... He's really helping to build the faith of Jacob. What is faith? I mean, it's really trusting and believing that, trusting and believing what God says and that he will do what he says he's going to do. And then operating in that, believing that, that fueling your steps. And so here it's an amazing encounter that he's having with God here because as a guy who's setting out, who's probably got a lot of questions, a lot of insecurities, a lot of hurt, um, a guy who's running, who the circumstances surrounding his journey are far from ideal. God, in his grace, is meeting Jacob here and beginning to work in his life. But it required that he was taken out of these circumstances, that he was taken away from these circumstances, and such is often the case in our own lives. And now in this encounter, God's saying, I will, I am with you, I will keep you, I will bring you back, I'll protect you, I promise. And guys, the same promises are there for us as well. Those same promises are there for each and every one of us. That he's with you, that he'll keep you, that what he said he's going to do, he's going to do it. And it's up to us then to operate in faith, believing, God, you said you're going to do this, I'm going to trust you. Every step of the way. Secondly here, it's important for us to note this here, I think especially in light of some things that are going on right now, so if you'll allow me just a slight departure for a moment, I think we need to deal with this here tonight. God is here also reiterating a promise. And it's not just that he's with Jacob and what he's doing or will do in Jacob's life, but he's also said here that the land on which you lie As I promised Abraham, I am promising you, it's yours. It's yours. Listen, just as we considered with the Edomites and the relentless assault upon Israel, it has been that way from numerous enemies throughout history, and it continues to this day. If you look, if you've paid attention at all these last couple of weeks about what's going on in Israel, the same thing is happening still today. And listen, here's what I want you to understand. The leaders of Israel, I, I, I don't stand up here tonight and just say that the leaders of Israel are perfect. 
that every decision that they've made is perfect. I'm of the opinion that some of what um, kind of sparked some of the recent violence there could probably have been handled a little bit differently. But I'll tell you this, the attacks upon Israel, the anti-Semitism that exists still today, sadly, in our, co- in our own country, the constant assault and the criticism from the world stage is absolutely deplorable. It's, it, you know, over the last few weeks, I've attempted uh, to make clear some stances of Calvary Chapel. Um, whether it was be- and, and, and just based off of what's happening around us and things that are going on in our culture, whether that's our stance on uh, complementarianism and, and, and women in ministry, uh, or whether that's issues that we're dealing with in Romans chapter 1 and 2, and, and much of that's going to continue. Listen, as we get into Romans chapter 8 and 9, we're going to deal with this again. But in light of what's happening here, I think it, it's important for you guys to know, and for those watching online, for this to be recorded, that... Uh, uh, as far as Calvary Chapel is concerned and as far as I'm concerned, I stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. The fact that we have leaders in our own Congress that are voicing support for Hamas, which is a known terrorist organization, that these leaders are, conde- are, 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 are voicing support for Hamas and condemning the actions of Israel and not that of Palestine and the relentless attacks upon Israel, it angers me. I mean, it just downright angers me. I found it interesting, and no doubt many of you have read some of these same things if you've read into this at all. Uh, Israel is treated differently from other nations on the world stage. Plain and simple. It cannot be denied. And I always think to, to people who, I mean, it, it, it's fishy, isn't it? <laughs> that is, you read Scripture from the very beginning, and you see the, the blessing upon Israel, and you see what God has done through, through establishing the nation Israel, and that even still today, the, the, the way they're viewed um, differently than any other country in the world. I mean, we have to step back and go, hmm, wow, that seems to suggest something. But Israel is. They're treated differently from other nations on the world stage. There's the United Nations Human Rights Council. Okay, it's a part of the it's a part of the UN, and the Human Rights Council is responsible for basically paying attention to all the countries in the world, and taking it upon themselves then when they see a human rights violation, to condemn it. And I don't, I don't know that I know everything that comes along with that other than it's at least a statement to say we condemn the action on this country. Okay? Since 2015, here's, here's how many times some of these countries have been issued, not commendations, condemnations. Okay? What countries might you think would be on that list? If you think Russia maybe would be on that list, you're right. They're on there 12 times. Twelve times since 2015, Russia has been condemned by the UN Human Rights Council. How about North Korea? They might make the list, right? Six times. Six times the UN Human Rights Council has condemned actions on the part of North Korea. You might not think the United States would be on there, but we are. Seven times we've received condemnations, mostly for uh, international relations. Syria, eight times. Okay, so you've got Russia 12 times, North Korea 6 times, U.S. 7 times, Syria 8 times. How about China? Anybody want to guess China since 2015? Zero. Zero. They have concentration camps, active concentration camps in China today. Zero condemnations. Pakistan? Zero. 
Venezuela, zero. Libya, zero. Cuba, zero. Turkey, zero. Now, how about Israel? 112. 112. You want to tell me something's not going on? Jonah Goldberg, a writer for the Dispatch, writes this. What countless others are arguing is that Israel has no right to act like a normal country. You don't have to hate Jews to believe that the only Jewish country in the world is also the only country in the world that can't behave like a normal country and defend itself. This is crazy, guys. And you don't think the things that we're seeing on a global stage right now aren't rooted in this? The website Foundations for Truth posted this, uh, the, the following this week. I wholeheartedly agree with it. America must stand strong alongside our ally and friend. It is more and more evident that the nations of the world are turning against Israel. This sadly includes our own USA as seen in the recent changes in our policies regarding this longtime ally. The current administration is turning its back on Israel to favor Hamas. These moves will clearly not benefit us or the rest of the world. God, who keeps his promises, according to Psalm 145.13, has stated, Blessed is the one who blesses you, and cursed is the one who curses you. Numbers 24, 5 and 9. God is returning his people Israel to the land he gave them. Jeremiah 31.23, Ezekiel 37, 1-14. His blessings to Israel depend in large measure on their possession of their land, the land promised to them, Deuteronomy 30, 16. His promise of blessing to Abraham is given on the basis of their inhabiting this land, Genesis 26, 3. God said, this land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Guys, we got to be paying attention to this. And, 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 and these are the types of things, too, that are fueling greater understanding of fulfillment of end times prophecy. So again, forgive me for that departure there, but I think in light of current events, we can't pass over a reiteration of the promise that the land is theirs and not consider the continued attacks that are coming upon them and the fact that our own country is, yes, right now in subtle ways, beginning to withdraw its support. Guys, the blessing that this country has enjoyed, the blessings we've enjoyed throughout history, are in direct correlation to the degree to which we have supported and stood by Israel. Plain and simple. It goes back to George Washington and stating that Jewish people would find a place of refuge here. So, here we are at this place. Jacob has made his way to what is what he's not yet referred to as Bethel, which stands for or which translates house of God. He's sleeping here at this place. It's already been a long journey. Scripture doesn't tell us, but based off of where he's at, it's likely taken him two to three days of walking already. So it's not just like he sort of walked out the back door and, um, you know, like a kid who says, hey, I'm running away, and he's got his backpack on, and he stops 100 yards into the woods, right? He's No, he's gone the distance, okay? Uh, 70 miles plus uh, at this point. Two, again, two to three days probably of walking. And, and as I've uh, shared a little bit earlier, uh, let's be honest, Jacob isn't exactly cut out for this, it would seem. He's been at home most of his life. And so this is probably challenging him in a, in a multitude of different ways. And he comes to this place that he, he doesn't, it doesn't seem that he knows much about it, especially that this was a special place to his grandfather. Uh, and he just comes and he rests. Um, and it seems then for the first time, based off of what we read, for the first time that God sees fit here to make himself personally known to Jacob. 
Now consider for a moment what Jacob saw. Go back to the description, if you will, some participation here. Describe to me what Jacob was seeing here. Jacob's ladder, as it's referred to. What, what was happening? What's that? Yeah, what were, they, what were they descending and ascending upon? What's that? Somebody said it. A ladder, right? Where was the ladder going? From, from where he was at all the way into heaven, right? It had to be kind of a weird sort of vision here, but here, here all of a sudden is this ladder that's going all the way up into the heavens, and you got angels coming down, and you got angels going up, okay? Why, why might this vision that he's seen here, knowing too that God is, I mean, God's making himself real to Jacob in this moment. There's got to be a purpose behind this. Jacob, who, who is struggling in, in all the areas that I've already mentioned, why might this vision here, as odd as it may sound at first glance, why might it have been so significant to Jacob? What do you think? What had Jacob been striving after for so many years? A few different things, I think. What, what do you think? What has, he been, what has he been after? The blessing? Acceptance? What was in the blessing? What, what, why did he want the blessing? What's that? Yeah? What's that? Inheritance? Could be part of it. Jacob, it seems, from the very beginning, was one who was, was sort of fighting for a place, right? How, how, did, how did his dad view him compared to his brother? What's that? Well, yeah, he viewed him as a trickster, but was he favored? No. You don't think that Jacob didn't know that his dad liked his brother more? Right? As Jacob makes his way to Laban, um, and he begins this process of, of pursuing a wife, He's going to receive a little bit of his own trickery. It's going to kind of come around on him a little bit. But I think we're going to continue to see uh, a bit of Jacob's personality on display. What about when, when, when eventually it finally comes time for him to leave, according to him, um, he's going to leave with, with, with Leah uh, and Rachel, right? But then he goes out and he wrestles with God. And, w- and what's he wrestling with God about? He wants the blessing. Jacob is going to continue to go through this pattern of saying he wants something. He's desperate for something. You could say that there's an aspect of insecurity, of validation that he's seeking, and be careful not to put too many of these things out there that we don't know for sure, but I I think it's pretty safe to say that we're seeing some patterns in his life, right? There's got to be a question at this point too for Jacob, as much as he has been uh, probably faithful in doing the things that have been instructed, whether that be a, a system of sacrifice, um, there was probably a, a, an aspect of his desiring the birthright because he didn't see, see his brother as fit to lead the family in the way that he was intended to lead him as priest uh, over the family. Um, but there's got to be at this point a real question for Jacob as to, uh, God, do you... Are, are, you, are you really there for me? Do you really love me? How many people root their understanding of God the Father based off of their understanding of their earthly father? Almost all, right? Now, I'm not trying to say that Isaac's a terrible guy, but we know he's not perfect. So knowing, and again, guys, just talking through this a little bit, a little bit of speculation, now he starts to see heaven's opened up, there's something that's connecting now where he's at to heaven. There's angels coming down, angels going up. If he's got any sort of doubts about God, and, and think about what, what's, God, what, what's God promising him here? 
He, yes, he said, hey, this land, I'm going to reiterate this promise, this land is yours, it's your descendants. But what does he specifically say to Jacob? I'm with you. I'll keep you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you back. If God knows our hearts, if God's here is ministering to him, then what's, da- what's, what's Jacob feeling? I'm alone. Am I going to be okay? Is God really with me? Does he really care about me? And so now God shows up to him, this incredible act of grace, and he begins to give him this picture, right? It's really kind of a wonderful thing that's happening here. Now, how do we know, how do we then continue to understand what it is that God's communicating here? Because no doubt, too, Jacob, he knows the stories. He, he, I mean, he knows his history. He has to. And what, and what does the history tell him? Well, it goes back to a garden, and it's sin, and fall. But then what? A promise of restoration. A promise of what? A Messiah. Right? I mean, this is what, <laughs> this is what Jewish people are looking for. They're looking for a Messiah, right? But then again, so here God's saying, look, Look, I'm connecting you with me. I'm here. I'm with you. There, there, there's, 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 there's something that, that, that is creating access, right? Now, where else do we read about this ladder? You know? Look at John 1 for a moment. Look at John 1, beginning in verse 43, almost the end of the chapter. Those of you watching The Chosen, you're now gonna, you're gonna have some <laughs> you're going to have some images in your mind with this particular account. John chapter 1, verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here Philip goes to Nathanael and he says, We found him. It's him. We found him. And this is where in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. What a wonderful invitation. Now 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And verse 51, And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon what? The Son of Man. Let's go back for a moment. God to Jacob, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. Who is the one who makes a bridge between heaven and earth? Jesus, right? It's Jesus. You see, in all of, of, of Jacob's questions and insecurities, here God, in a moment where he appears to this man whom he's, who's, whom he's chosen, whom he's going to use, who is going to be the, um, is going to be part of the line that leads to the Messiah, he begins to give him a vision. 
in his insecurities, in his questioning, in his loneliness, in his fear, he says, look, there's a connection between heaven and earth. Angels and angels ascending, descending upon it. And we get fulfillment later on in the Gospel of John where Jesus himself says essentially, you ain't seen nothing yet. The heavens are going to be opened up. And there's going to be angels ascending and descending, not upon a ladder, but upon the Son of Man himself. So even here, it's pointing towards its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But what a wonderful encouragement for Jacob in this moment as God makes himself very real to him. Did you have a... I would say so, yeah. I know of only one way to heaven. And to see how Jesus speaks of it in verse 51 there of John chapter 1. And to know that, that Paul writes in his letter to uh, the church in Thessalonica, I think in his second letter to Thess- Thessalonica, it's where he says again, and you will see the heavens descending upon him, saying literally they're going to be coming down with me. Right? And so I really do believe that Jesus here, that God here is saying, I care about you, I love you, I'll make a way, I'll keep you, and yes, I will, I will make a way, I will make the way through the Messiah. And so then it's here in verse 16 that Jacob awakes from his sleep, it says, and she says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob is surely aware at this point as he, as he awakes from this dream. I mean, it, it couldn't have been the most restful of nights as it were. And, and probably after this dream, he's, he's wide awake and continuing to just think about what it is that he saw. But why didn't he know? Why, when you think about Jacob here saying, man, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Why don't you think he knew? Fear? Yeah. Distraction? I mean, up here, from a head knowledge perspective, Jacob has to understand that a characteristic of God is that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? So it couldn't have suddenly just occurred to him that, well, God is omnipresent, but now he's having a real encounter with God, right? I think to some degree, this is that moment for Jacob where he's going from a place of religion to relationship to truly having an understanding of who God is and the fact that God is with him and God will make a way and God will care for him. And so it's, this, it's, it's, it's no different than, than when somebody who's been coming into church for a while and finally comes to that place where they go, holy smokes, the gospel makes sense to me. And the Holy Spirit that's been with them, drawing them under repentance, they say, I got it. And they surrender their lives. And, and in that moment then it becomes... Rather than this place that it was kind of like, hey, I enjoyed coming here for a while and there was good people and it felt comfortable, it suddenly becomes more of, God, you're in this place. You're real. You're here. And I didn't even know it. I mean, for me, when I got saved, it was, I, I, I was sitting alongside, a, I was sitting in a park. But, but there was very much this sense. And then I get back in my car and I start making way, my way back to school. And though, yes, I had been taught that God was all present, all knowing, here I am riding in my car and I, and I have this sense of like, man, you're here. You're here. You're with me. And I didn't even know it, but you're there. You've always been with me. And all of a sudden, then that hindsight being 2020, you look back and you think, Lord, you've been there. Now, how do we know that he's getting it? Not just that he declares it, but then in verse 18, then Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it. You see, in this moment, we see that Jacob begins to worship 
Listen, when we have a true encounter with God where our lives are changed, where we come into a saving knowledge of who He is, where we finally arrive at that place where we go, man, Lord, you're here. It must move us to worship. And that's what He does here. He sets up an altar. Unable at this point probably to make a sacrifice, He's got oil, He pours it on top of the altar, the pillar that He had set up, and He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz, which means separation. The name of that city had been Luz previously, or Lutz. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way. And I think this is less, uh, most people agree, most commentators agree that this is less of him making a conditional statement and more about him saying in light of the fact that God is with me, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He's saying, if God, this promise that he's made to me, well, then this is my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And this is another aspect of confirming here his, his understanding and his, his salvation, if you will, this conversion point for Jacob is he not only worships him, but he says, I'm going to give to you. And so I do. I think this is a conversion point for Jacob from religion to relationship. And it came out of a place of, of great difficulty. It came out of a place of, you could argue, great failure amongst his family, though God never indicts Jacob for his behavior, so I would be reluctant to do so. But there were certainly failures amongst his family. It came out of circumstances that were entirely unplanned. It came in a place where he felt alone, where he felt deserted, where he was in fear. And it's in that moment that God meets him, God reminds him of the promises. God encourages him about what he's going to do for him. God points him towards his promise for the future. Uh, And it's where Jacob then uh, moves out now in a faith of his own. And then we're going to see from here that that then, as it is the case with with all of us, is we have this moment of, of conversion, and then we set out Uh, from there and God continues then to refine and to change and to transform and to sharpen and and we're certainly going to see that happen Um, all the way until that point when Jacob's leaning on his staff because he's a man with a limp and has been for many years but a man who's seen a lot and uh, a man who's going to die blessed and full with his whole family before him those who will comprise the 12 tribes of Israel and so he'll see then God's faithfulness fully on display. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you again, Lord, for our time together here tonight, for your word, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the blessing of it and, and the fun that it is, Lord, to study it and to consider, Lord, um, some of the things, Lord, that are even beyond our, our understanding or our knowledge, Lord. Um, there's an excitement in it, and uh, we, do, uh, we do thank you for it. And I just pray, Lord, for your blessing upon all those here tonight, Lord. We continue to meditate upon your word and you'd show us things throughout the rest of the week, Lord, as we return to our study of it. And, um, just go before us, Lord. Lead and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.